We come this morning to the place where um, they're going to uh, have the naming ceremony for Elizabeth's baby. And this is the story of that, the birth of John the Baptist, beginning in verse 57 of Luke 1. I'm reading from the ESV. I don't know why my iPad changed translations on me, so I told you I would stick with NASB, but I upgraded the operating system, and it's gone nuts, and I'll figure this out eventually. Uh, But uh, we'll do ESV for the morning. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered uh, and said, No, he will be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to the father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately, his, that is, Zachariah's mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them uh, laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Even today, in Jewish households, when a child, a son is born, uh, they don't circumcise their children in the hospital. I don't know how many of you are aware of that. But they go to the synagogue and the rabbi does it. That's an extra course in rabbi seminary that you have to know how to do circumcision. And uh, they go to the synagogue and the rabbi does the circumcision on the eighth day, around a ceremony for naming the child and dedicating the child, and, and it's the, the symbol and the history. Today it's more tradition than anything, unless it's an Orthodox family. But it's the tradition that goes all the way back to Abraham and is the sign and seal of the covenant of God with Abraham. And so, uh, Jewish people typically do not presume that um, they're going to have a live, healthy birth. Uh, it's interesting, when we were in Nashville, we, we uh, had friends, uh, because of Rowena's job at Vanderbilt, we had friends in the Department of Psychiatry that were um, uh, Jewish uh, physicians and whatever, and uh, one of them... Uh, got pregnant during uh, the time that Rowena was working there, and you know we kind of wanted to know uh, what the appropriate thing to do was, and we learned that you don't give gifts until after the child is born. There are no showers or anything like that because it is presumptive upon God to assume that you're going to have a live birth and a healthy child, and so they wait until the eighth day. Or they wait until this appropriate time, and once the baby is born, and, uh, you know, they bring the family together, and they bring the friends and neighbors, and they gather in this ceremony, and they circumcise the male children, and they name them at that occasion. 
So this is the scene that we're moving in on this morning as we uh, read this story. Um, Zechariah and Elizabeth have brought their baby and they're going to have the naming ceremony and the circumcision. And they get everyone together and of course they expect that after all of this long wait, um, this child is going to be named Zechariah to carry on, you know, the family tradition. And so they look to mom and she says, we're naming him John. And they're astonished. It's like, no, you must have that wrong. Poor Zechariah hasn't said a word for nine months. But he's got to weigh in on this. Clearly, you're out of control, lady. We're going to talk to him and see what he has to say. And so he asks for a tablet. And he writes down very clearly, his name is John. Now, there's a very specific reason for that. One obvious reason is that when he was ministering in the temple nine months earlier, and Michael, the archangel, visited him and brought him the message that Elizabeth was going to conceive in her old age, and they were going to have a son, and he said, you will name him John. So Michael had very clearly said, this is going to be the baby's name. And you remember what happened with Zechariah. He said, man, this is just too hard to believe. Uh, Can you give me some evidence? Can you give me some proof? And the angel said, okay, you want proof? You're not going to say another word until all of this has come to pass. So for nine months, Zechariah has not spoken a word. But um, he has listened and he has meditated, I'm sure, because of what he does say in just a few moments. Another reason that John is going to be named John, I think, is the significance of the name. Because both John and Jonathan derive from the same root and mean essentially God is, has been gracious or God has shown his favor. And after 400 years of waiting, the arrival of John the Baptist is the demonstration that God has shown his favor. That the time has come to honor the ancient promises of Israel and to bless all of the nation of Israel and really all of the world And John the Baptist is going to be the forerunner, he's going to be the herald of that news that Messiah is soon to follow. Now, when you consider what's going on here also, I want to point out to you that we learned last time that Mary visited Elizabeth in her sixth month, and she stayed with her until through the ninth month, until the birth of John. There is no question in my mind, I mean, sometimes you have to interpolate just human nature in Scripture. I mean, can you imagine Mary staying for, for three more months, and then when it comes time for deliverance, or for delivery, Mary just ups and goes home? Of course not. She's going to be there. She's going to want to see this baby. She's going to want to be present at this ceremony. She's going to want to know, uh, you know, what this part of the drama is unfolding. I have no question that Mary is in the audience of friends and family. 
And I also have no question in my mind that although it is clear from other uh, portions of the gospel that most people never put any credibility in the virgin birth, I have no question that Elizabeth and Zechariah were thoroughly confident that Mary had conceived Jesus as a virgin and that she was carrying Messiah. And all of this mystery and all of this wonderment that was surrounding this uh, was a part of, I'm sure, what Zechariah had contemplated during this last three months of Elizabeth's pregnancy. He thought about Mary there in his home. He thought about the kind of greeting that occurred when Mary arrived and the prophecy that that his own wife and that Mary spoke and he listened to all of these things and they were living in the most special time. And Zechariah has had all of this time to meditate upon the Scriptures and Isaiah and the prophecies of Isaiah and Malachi and the Psalms, all of these things that would have been so well known to him. And it's been building and it's been building and now as he uh, writes the proclamation, his name is John, the scripture says his mouth was open. And for the first time in nine months, he spoke. And the first words he began to utter were praising God and giving glory to God. And this is what he says, beginning in verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, speaking of John, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, because you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. There is no doubt, as Zechariah begins to prophesy, that he has in his own mind the deliverance that Israel has longed for. You recall that for 400 years, Israel has never really been free, even though the Babylonians let them return to Jerusalem and and rebuild the walls and whatever. It's been a long journey. Now they're under Roman oppression. They have struggled with all kinds of 
uh, difficulty and opposition. Even when they were building their own temple, uh, one of the uh, Roman emperors brilliantly decided that he was going to uh, have the Roman eagle placed over the temple as a symbol of Roman rule. And uh, that got defeated in a most interesting way. Uh, Every single rabbi and Pharisee uh, gathered before the Roman contingent and knelt on the ground and pulled their tunic back from their neck and said, you can kill us all, but you will never put the eagle on this temple. And finally, Rome realized that they had bit off more than they could chew, and they backed away from that. But Israel had suffered uh, and struggled, and they longed for their coming Messiah to deliver them, to bring political freedom, to set them free, um, to overwhelm their oppressors, and to give them uh, a whole new day in their lives. That is undoubtedly there. But Zechariah looks much more deeply into the reality and the recognition that it is not the outward circumstances that enslave people, but it is the inward condition of the heart that is the true bondage. And in his prophecy, he addresses the real hope of Israel. I want to begin kind of at the end and move backwards and look at what he has to say in this prophetic statement because uh, he ends up by talking about the people that sat in darkness and in the shadow of death and that God is visiting them and bringing light to them. Have you considered the darkness of people? around you, people in our world. When you read the newspaper, watch the news on TV, when you go to the mall and just look at people, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a student of human nature. I, I like watching people, just kind of gauging what's going on with them. We live today in a world that is incredibly dark, that, that is without light. When you consider the, the things that people hope for and spend their lives trying to acquire and sometimes steal for and all the things that drive humanity, in our world. It is an incredibly dark place. Searching for things that never bring fulfillment. Being in the dark is obviously being in a place without light, but it reduces a person uh, to a sense of fear and a sense of Dread, because you can't see what's around you. You really don't know what's out there. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation that's truly kind of inky black, 
or you can't see your hand in front of your face. But when you're in that situation, what is your natural tendency? Don't freak out. I heard who said freak out. <laughs> okay, I'll buy that. Uh, the idea is don't move. I don't know where the pitfalls are. I don't know where the bumps are. I don't know where objects are. I don't know what's lurking in the darkness. I don't know what's out there. I just feel like I'm paralyzed and like I can't move. Zechariah is describing, using the words of the prophet, he is describing the condition of the people of Israel and the people of the world as people who are sitting in darkness. Notice that they're seated. They're not trying to move around. They're waiting for what all people in the dark wait for. They're waiting for light. They're waiting for something to bring order and sense to what is around them, uh, to uh, chase away the shadows and to give them some way of navigating. He also talks about this darkness as being the shadow of death. That they're sitting in a place that has a bad future impending upon them. And from a spiritual viewpoint, people who are sitting in this kind of darkness, this spiritual darkness, are, are in a place where the only thing out beyond them is an eternal death of eternal darkness into outer darkness, where the Scripture says, Jesus Himself says, uh, their, their worm does not die, and day and night they are left with nothing but their memories of all the vain things that they chased. This is a dismal picture of people who were in bondage. You don't have to tie them up. You don't have to lock them uh, in a cell to imprison people who are in the dark. All you have to do is leave them without light. And they are not able, really, to function or to have any kind of sense of freedom or an absence of fear. They're paralyzed by the darkness. Zechariah recognizes, as he prophesies, that the real need of people in darkness is a relationship with God. They need to come back to having a relationship with God. Notice what he says back up earlier in his prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, verse 68, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Zechariah is talking about a spiritual solution, a horn of salvation, that which is going to bring true healing. The, the deepest meaning of that word is full restoration and full healing. And as he talks briefly about being saved from our enemies in the hands of those uh, who hate us, he says, verse 74, that we might be delivered from the hand of our enemies and serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all of our days. Zechariah is talking about a cure that is going to bring a transformation of character so that the people can serve God without fear. 
and serve Him in holiness and in righteousness. This is a total transition from what they are. The Scripture describes all human beings as locked in bondage to sin. Even when you want to get it right, if you're serious about that and you're determined and you want to do the right thing, there's still something inside of all of us that pulls us down. And Paul explains that in Romans, that it is the the power of sin and the law of sin and death that is constantly holding us in bondage. We need a deliverer. We need someone to release us from that. And this one who is coming is the one who's going to do that. He is going to release us from the fear and He is going to give us the capacity to serve God in holiness and in righteousness. This is like a brand new thing. This is something they have not experienced. And He says, to give knowledge of salvation, verse 77, to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. Clearly addressing the spiritual need. And what is the message of John the Baptist when he begins to preach and baptize by the River Jordan? Repent. (laughs) Turn from your sins. Turn back to God. His means of preparing for the advent of Messiah, Jesus Christ, is to encourage the people to prepare their heart by turning away from their sin. They have a spiritual problem. They don't have a Roman problem. They don't have a political problem. They have a spiritual problem. You know, when we look at our condition today, and you listen to people talk, what do they say? If we had a better economy, if we had less unemployment, if we had more opportunities, if our dollar went further, if we could solve the health care problem, and on and on, the, the if we could do this and if we could do that, the longing for people is somehow to get back to the good life. We realize that statistically we are now living in a time when the next generation, according to the analyst, will be the first generation in several that are going to do worse than their parents. The economic opportunities are not there that the boomers had. And for the first time, instead of making a better way for our children, they're going to have a tougher time. They're not going to have all of the uh, opportunities, quote unquote, that we had. Uh, The idea of owning a home, the American dream, is becoming more and more elusive. And... Everyone says, okay, what we need is to fix the economy. What we need is to have world peace. What we need is to stop all the pollution. What we need is to fix the planet. And and if we get all these things fixed, we'll be fine. No, we won't. Israel's problem is not Rome. And our problem is not the economy. The problem that humanity has in all situations is not being rightly related to God. When we are in right relationship with God, there is frankly nothing 
in this world that can destroy us. Jesus said, don't be concerned. <laughs> Listen to what he said. Jesus said some very radical things. We read over them and, and we're not listening. Don't be concerned about those who can kill the body. What? Don't be concerned about those who can kill the body. I saw on the news yesterday that some Al-Qaeda radicals had gone into the mall in Kenya and were excusing all the Muslims, but everyone else had to stay, and they killed many and wounded many. Imagine being in that situation. I'm not saying that you and I would not be frightened. We were designed to love life, okay? And so to, to be fearful in that situation is a natural response. But ultimately, ultimately, those people cannot hurt us. You hear, hear what Jesus is saying. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Rather, be concerned about the one who is able to throw body and soul into judgment or into hell. That's the one you need to worry about. And having a right relationship with God brings us into a place in this life where... Yes, we may get in circumstances that rattle us and, and make us anxious and our natural uh, fight-or-flight mechanisms kick into gear and, and that's perfectly normal. But we will never be in a place where we are alone and without hope and lacking a certain confidence. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That he will see us through every circumstance and walk with us in every situation and we can trust him. I got a new um, album uh, through iTunes, downloaded it. It was actually the, the annual album done by the Assemblies of God called One. And uh, it's a marvelous praise album. I've probably listened to that 20 times since I uh, put it on my iPhone and I listened to it in my car. And there's one song that keeps going through my mind again and again and again. And, and the, the, the line, the gist of the line is, no matter what else we see, no matter what else we hear, no matter what else we feel, God is good. God is good. We can trust Him. He is good. And we are safe in Him. Our need is always being rightly related to God. When that is true, there is nothing else that can shake us. We might struggle a bit. We might have some inconvenience. We might not get everything we think we want. 
But Paul says, I am persuaded that the, the temporary trials and troubles of this present life are not to be compared with the weight of glory that is to come. You know, and, and my prayer, and I just share a testimony with you. My prayer throughout this year, as, as I've gone through all the different, it seems like every time I turn around there's something else. And yet I don't have it anywhere near as difficult as so many people do. But sometimes I just get tired of all this stuff, you know. Last thing I want to do on Thursday night at 10.30 is go to Good Shepherd ER. It's just not, not on my wants list. You know, I just get tired of this. And in the midst of that, I talk to God. And, I, and, and my prayer is, Lord, bring me to that place where my connection with you is the most important thing in my life so that these other things truly become trivia. And I really walk in a place of victory and peace and have your presence as my joy and my companion. Lord, bring me to that place where I have heavenly perspective on the daily issues of this life because my life is not wrapped up in just what happens here. There are bigger things. And my, my significance and my meaning here is far greater than the stuff that we call our mundane daily lives. We, we have those things. They're a part of life. But can we see it from God's viewpoint? That's what Zechariah is praying. That's what he's prophesying. That's what he's proclaiming. Freedom. Real freedom. Real peace. Contentment in God. It gives us a poise that is amazing. Absolutely amazing. And the way to have that relationship with God is through Jesus. The answer is always through Jesus. Because, verse 78, in the, of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Do you know how much God loves the world? Do you know how much He loves you? Do you know how much He loves us? Zechariah describes the advent of Messiah as the tender mercy. Put those two words together. Tender. There is all kind of feeling in that word. There's all kind of nurture there. There's gentleness. There's compassion. There's kindness. When you treat someone tenderly, you take into account all of their hurts, all of their needs, all of their circumstances. You are considerate of their weakness so that you can be 
tender toward them. And then when you add mercy to that, you bring in that element of giving us things that that we don't even deserve. Bringing into our lives the blessing. Showering us with His goodness. Because of the tender mercy of God. His love is incredible. John put it this way and he placed the so at the beginning of the sentence. So loved God the world that he gave us his son. Because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. If you're in the dark, what you need is light. If you're in the dark, you need sunrise. You're waiting for the dawn. You're hoping for the darkness to go away and the light to come. And Jesus Christ is that light. He is the light of the world. People are sitting in darkness. and They don't comprehend Him. But He is the light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He is the hope. And notice that Zechariah says, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Actually, he's quoting Malachi, the last chapter of Malachi, but the sunrise shall visit us from on high. In Zechariah's prophecy, whether he is fully conscious of what he's saying, but under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, he tells us the origin of this gift called Jesus. He has come from on high. He is not of this world. He has come into this world from on high to visit us. Again, as John puts it, and we beheld His glory, glory as of an only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, put His tent up right in the middle of us. And lived his life in front of us. So that he could say to the disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I have brought you living testimony of the character of God in my person. And all that you've seen me do are the things my Father has been doing. And so the sunrise has visited us. From on high. God reaching out. God bringing deliverance. And John the Baptist, his mission will be to prepare the way for Messiah who will come with this hope. Do you have that hope in your heart today? Do you know, do you know that you know that you know God because the sun has dawned Upon your life, the light has come. And yet, all around us, people still live in darkness. And no matter what you do, no matter where you do it, no matter what you're about, our mission is to be light bearers. Let your light 
so shine before men that they can see your good works and glorify the Father in heaven, that they can recognize your connection with God. We are the light bearers because the light has come, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Father, I want to thank you this morning for this tremendous prophecy of Zechariah, for the Holy Spirit insight, for the clear answer that you gave to him, to Israel's need to once again be rightly related to you through the one who brings salvation and redemption and delivers from fear and brings hope and holiness and righteousness and gives us peace. And his name is Jesus. And we thank you this morning for him. Amen.